Hey everyone, welcome back to the Weekly Recap. My name is Matlock Babesco. Unfortunately, again, Corey and I are still sick. Our whole family is just still getting over this this uh, sinus infection, this bug, whatever it is. And uh, we're really hoping to get back to normal for you next week to get things back on track with uh, Corey and I are doing the recap together. Uh, for now, though, we've again, we've taken Corey's previous uh, recaps from last year, from 2021. We're covering Song of Solomon 1 to Isaiah 14. So we've taken those, put those together for you. I hope you enjoy those. And then next week, we'll be back to normal. The new, I, ho- I really hope so. So for now, God bless, take care, and enjoy your week in studying the Bible. I want to talk about what this book is, because there's a lot of conversation about how we should understand Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Um, so what is it? First of all, at its basic level, it is an acrostic poem. So it's a piece of poetry that utilizes the Hebrew alphabet in order uh, to organize itself. All right. Uh, It's an acrostic poem about love, specifically romantic love between a man and a woman who are married. Uh, The man I counted um, six times where the man calls the woman his bride. There could be more, but that's on my read through it this time, I counted six. Uh, and it's so it's about romantic love and sexual love between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Okay, the interpretations of Song of Songs are so many, and uh, the most popular today are probably uh, that the book should be taken as an overall allegory or metaphor for the relationship between Christ and the church, uh, or between God and Israel. It's also, there's another interpretation that just sees it as a play. And there's another interpretation that sees it just as a poem celebrating romantic and sexual love. Okay, so I know that many of you probably will have varying views on this. I personally lean to the interpretation that this is just a poem about romantic and sexual love. It's celebrating romantic love as given by God. Um, the reason I lean this way, and it's okay if, if you don't agree with me on this, but the reason I lean this way is because there are a lot of sexual references that don't seem to add up well to a metaphor uh, of the relationship between Christ and the church or God and Israel uh, without getting really weird. There's just some weird stuff in there. I'm like, oh, I don't see how that works really well as a metaphor. Don't get me wrong. I know that Israel is spoken of as a bride to God and the church is spoken of as the bride of Christ in the New Testament. But uh, it's the song doesn't even give a hint that it should be taken as an allegory, that it's meant to be an allegory. And it talks blatantly about human sexuality quite a bit. Whereas when the Bible does talk about the God-Israel-Christ-Church relationship, it's always couched in this provider, protector, redeemer imagery uh, rather than sexual imagery that's used in the Song of Songs. Uh, In fact, Sexual imagery in Israel's case is always a negative allegory, right? Her idolatry is compared to adultery and prostitution, okay? So deviant sexuality. Okay, so 
The next logical question then is why would a romantic poem be included in the Bible? And I think it actually makes a lot of sense that it would be included with the wisdom literature of the Bible specifically because the wisdom literature has spoken of the meaninglessness and the toil of life in this sinful world and it's also spoken of the love between a man and a woman being this wonderful mystery back in the Proverbs that no one can quite understand. So human relationships, romantic relationships as given by God between a man and a woman in a covenant with one another, this is celebrated in the Song of Songs as something truly wonderful, something unbreakable and given to humanity by God to be enjoyed, right? So not only is sexual reproduction uh, the only way the human race will survive, but marriage and the family unit is the backbone of society. That's just the way that it has been. And it can be an amazing blessing. So Song of Songs demonstrates a really healthy uh, um, relationship and it celebrates that. Okay, so I know that was long. So let's just jump right into the first three chapters here. Chapter one, there's three speakers that are introduced. She, so the woman, the friends, and he, the man. Wife, friends, husband. Uh, this chapter introduces a trend that repeats itself often. The lovers start out apart and then they find each other and it's all wonderful and mushy and sweet, right? So there's a lot of praising each other's physical attributes, how beautiful and handsome they are, and a lot of talk about how sweet their love is. In chapter two, they finally unite. They're finally in each other's presence and they literally melt into each other's embrace. Um, the, you know, the wife talks about him having his hand behind her head, arm behind her head and hand behind her back. And it's all very nice. Uh, then the second meeting of the lovers is introduced, right? So then all of a sudden they're separated again and the husband invites the wife to a meeting. Uh, so in chapter three, that continues and the wife looks for her husband at night in the city and finds him and brings him home into her chamber. Then again, this reverts to now they're apart again and they need to come back together. So this time the husband is either pictured as Solomon himself or this is supposed to be envisioned as an equal to Solomon. So equal in splendor. And that's where it gets us. Summarizing Song of Songs without getting into too much detail is actually pretty easy because it's basically this story of separation and then coming together and separation then coming together and um, describing each other's physical attributes. That's basically all it is. Okay, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs chapter four. So uh, this is another typical chapter of Song of Songs, which is just a poetic, you know, love story. Um, just waxing eloquent about each other's beauty and merits as, you know, lovers. Uh, so in the description in chapter four of uh, his wife, the he, the, the man figure, the husband figure of Song of Solomon is again waxing eloquent about her beauty, about his wife's worth. Um, but I wanted to mention to you the mention of her jewelry because I think it's worth noting. He describes her neck in this way in verse four. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with courses of stone. 
Uh, on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Okay, so it's this neck made of strong, so it's strong. It has integrity, right? It's not just going to fall over. Uh, but also on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Okay, so I have to look into the significance of warriors' shields and some of the symbolism that goes along in the ancient culture uh, with hanging it in palaces and, and rooms and things of that nature. But we do know that Kings David, Solomon, and Rehoboam hung shields from their palaces because it's specifically mentioned in the Bible. So uh, shields of gold and shields of bronze, if my memory is serving me right. And so while these were decorative, they represented at least the power of the kingdom. Like I said, I have to look into it a little bit more, but the power symbolism is very easy to see here, you know, symbolically displaying how many wealthy warriors uh, that they had on their side, at their disposal. So then likewise, the woman's necklace, the wife's necklace here, showed how many would defend her, okay? So she's like a well-defended well-decorated city in this analogy. Now, if you are able to look up the royal jewelry of Ur, uh, or if you're able to look at, um, you know, some Bronze Age jewelry from ancient Israel, there's pictures on the internet. On a quick Google search, you'll be able to find it. I know there's some that were found at the city of Lachish. Uh, you'll see these strings of shaped beads and the ones from Israel all hung in rows across the neck and chest. Uh, and they do indeed look reminiscent of shields. So this analogy makes sense. Perhaps that's what they were going for. Uh, another really easy uh, statue that you may already have seen that would have something like this would be the bust of Nefertiti. Painted on that bust across her chest and going up her neck a little bit is an Egyptian style of, you know, rows and rows of beads that may look like shields. Okay, Song of Solomon chapter 5. Um, it has another one of these separations that we've seen a few times in the book before where the lovers are separated, they're apart, and they can't stand it. They want to be back together again. And there's this long, mushy, physical description of the man. Song of Solomon chapter 6, there's a description of the woman in here as better than all of the royal queens, concubines, and virgins. So in other words, she's more desirable physically and in every other way than the royal harem. Now this chapter 6 is also the chapter when uh, the woman starts being called the Shulamite. Now interestingly, this word Shulamite is the feminine version of Solomon. So if we're looking at this poetically, it's entirely possible that the man is looking at the woman and he's saying you're my Solomon you're as desirable as Solomon you know the most um, richest splendorful king uh, in ancient Israel and she's saying to him you are like my Solomon okay so this could be a poetic way of saying that they are each other's Solomon okay uh, Song of Songs chapter 7 is another long poetic description of both the man and the woman. So we're not going to dig too deeply into that one. Uh, Song of Solomon chapter eight. Um, the point of the entire book, I believe, is actually recorded in this chapter. And the point of the book is a commentary on the power of love within marriage and as a gift of God. So 
Uh, where I get this from is verse 6, but this is after connecting their love to childbirth uh, and procreation. The woman then says in verse 6, she says, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. All right, so signet seals, like she's saying, place me as a seal over your heart on your arm. Signet seals, both the cylinder type that would be rolled across a, a piece of clay and the stamp that would be impressed into clay. Uh, both these became a part of the owner, an extension of them. And as such, these seals often would be buried with the people whose signature was on them or whose image uh, was on them you know, a symbol that came to be known as them. Uh, so the woman saying here, put me as a seal on your heart, put me as a seal on your arm. The lovers had formed a new identity together. They were one, right? She was his seal. She was an extension of him. She was a part of him. She was carrying his authority. See, your seal uh, would be impressed on a piece of clay, on a document, for example, a business document. And that meant that you were held to that agreement. So th this is there's this very deep connection here where they're representing their individuality, but at the same time, how they, were, they are an extension of one another. The wife is an extension of the husband. They are one. Uh, and then she goes on to talk about how love is, is as strong as death, like a fire. And she goes on and she talks about um, a, like rushing water, a very powerful force can't stand against it uh, and money can't stand against it. So she looks to these power sources in the ancient world and even today to say that love is as strong or stronger than death, fire, water, and money. Okay, that concludes Song of Solomon. And now I am very excited to be moving into the prophets. I particularly love Isaiah. So let's jump into Isaiah chapter one. So Isaiah gives us a timestamp here. He tells us that he prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. These are kings who ruled over Judah, uh, and their capital city was Jerusalem, where the Jerusalem temple of the Lord was. Okay, so Uzziah was kind of a medium king. He, he, he wasn't great, and he wasn't bad either. He was right in the middle, uh, and he... Uh, he did expand the borders of Israel, he, of Judah, I should say. He's a really interesting guy. If you go back into Kings and Chronicles and look at all the different things that he did in the experimentation with warfare and weaponry in particular, uh, he ruled during a time of peace. So he had the luxury to explore all of these things. Um, <clears throat> He was afflicted with leprosy in the latter part of his life because he got too proud and he tried to offer incense in the temple, which was a big no-no. So for the rest of his life, he kind of ruled Judah from a separate palace, but his son Jotham was a co-regent for him in Jerusalem, and he basically ruled the kingdom for his dad. Okay, so then Jotham was a pretty good king. Uh, there were wars during his lifetime, but he was a good king. Uh, Ahaz was awful. He was a terrible king. Uh, there were really bad wars during Ahaz's life. And then Hezekiah, uh, he had a full-scale invasion. It was really bad. The warfare just got worse during Hezekiah's reign, but 
He was a great king. So that that timestamp that Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, because we've already gone through Kings and Chronicles, that can make a note in our mind of the kinds of times that Isaiah is living through. Peace and then ever-progressing warfare with uh, at least one awful king and one great king. Okay, so... Judah. This is really important that he's in Judah. We need to remember that there's two separate countries now, northern Israel and southern Judah. Uh, and during Isaiah's lifetime and ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel would fall to Assyria. And two of the kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah, saw that fall of the northern, their, their sister country that was bigger than them and stronger than them, more powerful than them, fall to Assyria. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 1 uh, the prophecy of this chapter compares Israel and Judah to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, essentially, they had left God's ways, and that path meant that they would be destroyed if they didn't repent. And even worse uh, than this, they're still partially kind of following God. They're fooling themselves. You know, they're doing whatever they want, but they're just slapping God's name on it. So, they're denying that God is who he says he is, if you think about it. God claims to be the only God, and he signed a covenant with these people. And so by them worshiping other people while still worshiping God, they're actually denying God because God says, no, I am the only God. Follow me alone. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, we'll still offer your sacrifices, but we're also going to do what we want over here. So they're denying God. Uh, I would encourage you to read Isaiah chapter 1 verses 11 to 20. It's very interesting and summarizes that chapter and the problem very well. Okay, Isaiah chapter 2. So, um, now that Israel and Judah have been rejected, kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, God claims that, in verses 2 to 5, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So Isaiah chapter 1 establishes that the people of God, the covenant people of God, have been rejected. And that chapter 2 reveals that God is going to put out a call to all nations of the world to come to him. And they will come to him. And then, and then there's, an, there's kind of a break here. And it's almost like hearing God's heart, hearing Isaiah's heart as well. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. As in, it's not too late. Repent. The chapter also goes on to say that Israel and Judah have abandoned God specifically for superstitions, riches, uh, w power in warfare, like horses and chariots, and idols, and how because of this they will ultimately face judgment. Okay, Isaiah chapter 3. This is all about judgment on Judah and the, her capital city of Jerusalem. 
And there's this horrible picture of the chaos that will happen as God brings judgment in the form of other nations invading, like Assyria, and then finally Babylon, uh, you know, invading and taking over the land. Uh, it talks about how there will be so little men left that the pieces of the nation will literally be picked up by youths, so children and women who are left over in the land. Uh, and there's also a note in here that the righteous, those who follow God, actually follow God, they're going to be okay, but that there's not many of them. Um, but even so, the righteous will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. So if you're righteous, there's going to be a harvest for that. Isaiah chapter 4. This is the first branch of the Lord prophecy. You've probably heard that if you've gone to church uh, for any amount of time, a Christian church. Um, now, this branch prophecy, it's going to take on a messianic flavor later on in Isaiah. So it's going to kind of morph into being about the Messiah. Uh, but here in Isaiah chapter 4, the branch of the Lord actually refers to the survivors of the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, and likely this branch prophecy is based off of how an olive tree works. So olive trees uh, can be propagated by shoots that start to grow out around the base of the tree, around the, the trunk, the stump of the tree. And even if you were to fell an olive tree, if you were to chop it off so that there's nothing left, just a stump, shoots would still grow up from around this olive tree. Um, so even though Jerusalem is being felled, it's being cut off, uh, the olive tree is going away and nothing is going to be left, only rubble, a shoot or a branch will grow out of the wreckage and become fruitful and beautiful. Uh, also, Isaiah chapter 4 connects this destruction to the exodus, which is really interesting, and the wilderness wandering period, because it says in verse 5, then the Lord will create over uh, all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night over everything the glory will be a canopy so just as God's presence led the Israelites uh, to their destination after the exodus God's presence will be with the godly survivors to protect them Isaiah chapter 5. This is the song of the vineyard. Now, I've recently done a segment about ancient vineyards and the process of planting one in the daily program. Uh, but this chapter gives a really good description of how an ancient vineyard uh, was established. And in this case, specifically in Isaiah chapter 5, though, it's God who's planting the vineyard, which is his people. It's Israel and Israel. Uh, and he thinks he plants it with good grapes, but the return is sour. It's bitter. It's bad grapes. So he's going to wipe it out and start again. So it's the symbolic picture of the history of ancient Israel. Isaiah chapter 6. So this seems to tell the story of Isaiah's commissioning as a prophet. And it's happening in the same year that King Uzziah died finally of his leprosy. And Jotham, you know, became fully king rather than just co-regent. Now, in this vision... Isaiah sees the presence of God. He sees like the throne room of God above the temple in Jerusalem. And the first message that's given to Isaiah is that judgment is coming to Judah and that the people by and large will not repent, even though chances had been given and chances will be given and destruction will inevitably occur. Isaiah chapter seven. Okay, 
this is a very famous chapter because it contains a messianic prophecy that is debated. You know, I'll just come right out there, right out there and say it. This is the famous sign of Emmanuel. And of course, in the Gospels, it's looked back to as a prophecy of Jesus, but it also had fulfillment in the lifetime of Isaiah as well. Uh, this There's a couple things going on in this prophecy. So what's happening in the context of this chapter is that there's an anti-Assyrian coalition coming against Judah. So the nation, the empire of Assyria is campaigning and they want to take over territory. They already control northern Israel, but northern Israel has rebelled. They don't want to be a vassal kingdom of Assyria anymore. So they've stopped paying their yearly tribute and they joined forces with Aram, also called Syria and their capital city of Damascus. And now these guys are trying to build up their military and their land control so that they stand a chance against the Assyrian forces that are going to be coming to try to conquer them and reclaim their territory. So that is the background of what's going on here. So Isaiah comes to King Ahaz of Judah uh, with a message. Trust God because God is going to save you from this, this anti-Assyrian coalition. Verse 9 even says, you know, to Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So essentially it, it goes, I'm going to move off quoting the verse now and just tell you what happens. Ask for a sign, Ahaz, so that you know God and Isaiah are telling you the truth. But Ahaz won't do it. He pretends like, oh, you're not supposed to test God. He pretends that it's, he's all righteous here. But in reality, he had already determined to reach out to the enemy, to the king of Assyria for help. So Isaiah and God obviously know this, so they go ahead and give him a sign anyway. A child would be born, and before he would be full grown, so probably 12 or 13 years old, reaching manhood and full acceptance into the, into the society as an adult, Aram and Israel would be destroyed, and Assyria would march on Judah. So again, long term, this prophecy of a child being born would be later used in the Gospel of Matthew to refer to Jesus. And double prophecies are known in the Bible. So this idea of a prophecy is filled and then it's fulfilled or it's filled full. So it kind of happens twice. Isaiah chapter 8. There's a few things going on in Isaiah chapter 8. First, Isaiah, his wife, and children are being used to communicate God's message both verbally and also symbolically, so via actions that they do. And by the naming of their children, Isaiah and his wife are also prophesying to Judah. Uh, another thing that's happening is Judah is going to be devastated by Assyria specifically, that's mentioned. Uh, the third thing that's going on in chapter 8 is that it's talking about how the righteous will not fear anyone except God. So don't fear the king. Don't fear Assyria. Don't fear for your life. Fear God alone. Trust in him. And another thing that happens in chapter 8 is there is a warning against consulting mediums, psychics, and spiritists. And it's shaming those who are doing such because they are rejecting God. They are rejecting God's counsel and going after the dead. 
Isaiah chapter 9, making progress. So this one is all about how um, the people's trust in other people, in spirits, in things other than God has actually plunged them into darkness. But God will not leave them in that darkness. So verse 2, again, this messianic, messianic noted prophecy here says this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And this chapter names the land of Zebulun, Naphtali, and Galilee specifically. Now, this is where the Assyrian invasion began and the Assyrian deportations began in the land. And this is also the area where Jesus Christ did most of his ministry hundreds of years later. So darkness and light. Uh, and of course, the very famous verse 6 of chapter 9 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah chapter 10, this is all about judgment against Assyria. So God allows Assyria to punish, to like to come in and, and take over. He allows that for the punishment of Israel and Judah. But then in turn, he punishes Assyria for their evil because it's still evil. So the purpose for the punishment for allowing Assyria to come and destroy Israel and Judah is given. And that purpose is so that they will again put their full trust in God. So they will realize that what they're doing is horribly wrong and they need to figure out how to get back to God to return to the covenant that they had originally made with God. Isaiah chapter 11, here comes that branch prophecy again, but this time taking on a very serious messianic flavor, okay? Messianic motif. So a branch from Jesse, which of course is King David's father. This is a messianic, you know, the Messiah is coming from King David, from that line. Uh, there's a righteous king, this righteous branch with justice, uh, he has peace bringing power. You know, it talks about how the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the calf with the lion, and a little child will lead them. It's that passage. Uh, and all people, not just Israel, but all nations will be under this messianic king. Isaiah chapter 12, this records two songs of praise that people will sing when the Messiah king changes everything. Isaiah chapter 13, this is a prophecy against Babylon, who eventually did destroy Assyria. Uh, you, and then after destroying Assyria, they eventually destroyed Judah and the city of Jerusalem as well. But this happened way after Isaiah's life. So he's forecasting, you know, he's foretelling way in the future that eventually Babylon will also be destroyed. Isaiah chapter 14 continues this prophecy of destruction against Babylon, uh, this time in a form of a taunt that the Babylonian exiles, the people that Babylon affected the most, will say upon Babylon falling. And essentially it runs the line of, you know, you thought you were God, but you died like everyone else. That's kind of a very crude summary of what goes on in this entire chapter. Isaiah 14 also contains a prophecy that's similar against the Philistines who are also enemies of Israel and Judah. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content. 
but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.